Welcome to the first of the 2017 Divinity Dialogues sponsored by the HDS Alumni Council. I'm Margaret Rose, chair of this year's council, and our first meeting of the school year starts tomorrow. So I want to thank my fellow members of the council for being here, and especially to thank you for your presence and your hard work for those of you who've been here in the past, and for new members, the hard work that is yet to come. And also especially thank you to Dean Hampton for, for being here and for supporting all the work that we are doing and what's happening here at the Divinity School. I'm an MDiv graduate from 1979, so I am grateful for my years as a council member and in the ways I've gotten to know the Divinity School today. I've appreciated the vibrant ways that Divinity School connects theological education with the world beyond the academy, especially now in an ever more diverse religious and political landscape. And so tonight we hold the first installment of Divinity Dialogues for this academic year. Since 2012, Divinity Dialogues programs organized by the council have been an opportunity to hear from alumni and their work in the years since studying here at HDS. They've been hosted here on campus and around the country, New York, Washington, and San Francisco. Our themes have been diverse and wide-ranging, focusing on such vital issues as healing, risk, service, and tonight, public voice. How do religious traditions, our faiths, call us to engage in the public square? What ways do our diverse voices enter the conversation, especially across religious and political divides? And how do we use the tools of theological education for this work? In a recent Wall Street Journal article, an editorial, John DeLulio of the University of Pennsylvania is quoted. Religion can be a tremendously and uniquely powerful civic tonic and a tremendously and uniquely destructive civic toxin. Tonight, we hear from alumni whose faith and courage has compelled them to speak and act in the public arena and whose voices, I'm sure, will inspire our own. I'm pleased now to turn this over to my colleague on the AAC, Susie Hayward, <laughs> MDiv 07, who will moderate this session and who was herself in Charlottesville on August 12th. Over to you. Thank you, Margaret Rose. And thank you to all of you for showing up. It's great to be here and I'm very excited to be a part of this conversation. And I'm especially grateful to the chair of our Alumni Council for choosing this theme of public voice to guide us throughout the year. I was here as a student uh, not long after September 11th and this question of what role religious scholars and clergy and people of faith should play in talking about religion in the public square was fiercely debated and there was a lot of disagreements about it, um, about whether to engage in the public sphere on religion, about how to engage in the public sphere, about how to do so in a way that can ensure the integrity of the complexity and the nuance of religion when oftentimes what folks want to hear in the public square isn't the granular details, isn't the gray areas that we often focus on here. Um, but there was also a strong conviction that there was a need to be out in the public square and a recognition 
of the ways in which religion in the public square has served as a tonic, even as it served in a toxin, and a, and a sense of moral obligation that as religion scholars, um, there was a, a role for us to play in helping to ensure some of that tonic around the country. So how much more so are these debates going on today with what's going on in our country? And I think that they reflect more broadly some of the debates that have gone on within our religious traditions for a long time. The prophetic impulse that's in within um, the Abrahamic traditions, certainly, in, an ob in obvious ways, but also in Buddhism and in Hinduism, the ways in which uh, religious figures, scriptural precedents, um, the, the legacies and the stories within religious traditions have shown important figures engaging with political figures. Um, engaging on issues of governance and issues of human rights and the dignity of all. But those prophetic impulses within traditions are sometimes supported by and sometimes constrained by the priestly and the pastoral and the other elements of religion that, that are debated as people figure out how to respond to suffering in the world and to situations of injustice. So, I'm very excited to be thinking about those questions in response to a particular event, very complex questions that we can perhaps um, grasp a little bit more fully or grapple with a little bit more easily in, in situ. And I'm very glad to have with us today three alumni who can help speak to particularly on August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the events leading up to it and the events in the aftermath how these questions of religion in, in the public space and in response to, to public issues and injustice and suffering um, were grappled with. We have with us today Tracy Howe Wispelway, who is an MDiv graduate from 012, or 2012. <laughs> uh, she's the Minister of Congregational and Community Engagement with the Justice and Witness Ministries of the United Church of Christ and is a resident in Charlottesville. We have Jelaine Schmidt who is a PhD from 2005, 05. Uh, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia, so also a resident of Charlottesville. And I'm my MDiv from- Oh, and MDiv, I'm sorry. MDiv 96. And to my left here, Willie Broderick, who is an MDiv from 2014, who lives um, here in Boston, in Roxbury, serving as the uh, youth development and, and young adults associate pastor of preaching, teaching, of preaching, teaching of youth development and young adults at the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury. And so they're gonna help us think about some of these questions in the lead up to on the day of August 12th and in the aftermath around the country. So I have three sets of questions that I want to engage all of you on in this discussion before we open it up to Q&A. But first I'd like to start by having all of you um, tell us a little bit about what led you to respond to uh, the events on August 12th in the way you did, in the lead up to or in the aftermath. Tracy, perhaps we could start with you. Sure. Uh, so glad to be here and um, yeah, just thrilled and to be here with Jelaine and see some familiar faces. Uh, and um, you know, being someone who lived in Charlottesville, uh, I think, uh, well, first of all, we very much felt like you know things were just happening to us. But as a person of faith, um, I I believe as a Christian, 
uh, that the action of God's love can be known in the person of Jesus and that we are called to embody the action of God's love uh, and that the life and death of Jesus is uh, entwined in state violence and the struggle against empire and state violence. So that's where I locate myself as a Christian and someone who seeks to embody uh, the action of love. In terms of inviting people to um, respond in Charlottesville, in particular working to organize clergy, the invitation was uh, in response to an acute pastoral uh, need that was surfaced by a violent, um, or an inbreaking of violent ideology and um, presence. So the invitation was around responding to that pastoral need, and then there was my, you know, my my faith tradition that mobilized me as well. Thank you, Jelaine. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for having me, and uh, it's it's helpful for my own processing, and and also for folks back home. I think when some of us do uh, discuss this in, in <clears throat> some public forums, and and uh, hope to. Um, I mean, this, the things that have happened to us in Charlottesville are applicable far afield uh, from Charlottesville. I think and we'll get in more into that discussion later on. But um, I, uh, you know, wh why, did, why did I get involved or, or, this, or how did I respond the way I did? I, I, uh, I'm a Christian and um, I take seriously uh, uh, the good news, uh, uh, evangelium, you know, that this is a public pronouncement. It's, it's meant to take place in, in public, that is to announce, uh, uh, you know, freedom for captives, uh, good news to the poor, etc. Um, and so, you know, to not hide my light under a bushel, and particularly in, in uh, uh, looking at all the structures of violence, uh, that uh, the violent institutions that structure our very daily life, I think it's important uh, for me as a Christian, as part of my Christian witness, to, uh, to um, be doing this work in a public place, to, you know, to kind of bearing witness to the way of uh, justice. And so that's, that's what led me, uh, that's you know, part of what uh, led my, my response. Um, this, this, uh, uh, what's going on in Charlottesville, I mean, what, what shows up in the media are, are are the kind of the larger eruptions that are considered more newsworthy. If it bleeds, it leads, unfortunately. Um, but in the reality is that uh, there, you know, for the past year and a half, there's been a kind of uh, almost weekly, in some, in some some months, almost weekly, uh, just different skirmishes, you know, in our downtown areas and and, and, and these sorts of things. So how to the kind of continuing uh, response on a, on a weekly basis uh, to you know things going on in the streets with these. Um, far-right uh, groups coming to town as well as dealing with uh, public officials in public forums such as city council meetings or hearings or you know this sort of thing and how to um, and then and then organizing other activists uh, to respond has, has been the, uh, the big learning curve uh, of my life and, um, and something that uh, I'm still kind of drawing on uh, you know some of the training here about you know thinking about what does it mean to uh, look at um, aspects of public life that that need to be addressed and how to respond in, in, a, in a very kind of volatile situation. Thank you, Willie. You were here in Boston. Was watching what was happening on August 12th, and then part of the response that happens not long after. Can you tell us about what led you to respond in the way you did? Yes. Uh, 
So uh, it's good to be back at HDS. Good to see so many familiar faces. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind, honestly, was just uh, we won't go back. We, we won't go back. Um, the impetus to think critically about how do you respond uh, was the first thing, was not really what to actually say, but to know that I had to say something. And wrestling with that notion, I then began to delve into, well, what do I draw upon? And, and what rang in my ear were the words of the prophet Micah, it says, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And for me, that sets the frameworks for the work that we do. Uh, you know, to talk about the public work, you have to start with what is your mission is to do justice uh, and to love mercy. And so for me, uh, I knew that something had to be said because I believe we've been building to this moment all, all along. Uh, I remember Sandra Bland. Uh, I remember Rakia Boyd. I remember sitting literally right over there when uh, I was the only voice who said something, we're not gonna let this day go by without talking about Trayvon Martin. And so this isn't new. I think uh, one of the things that, you know, is surprising to me is how shocked we are. <laughs> but this isn't a new moment. We've been seeing this moment and this tension in this country build and build and build. And so we've come to some sort of a peak where the rubber has sort of met the road. And so now I think what, what forced me to speak was that I've been working towards saying that, you know, at some point, hopefully my voice is gonna mean something. But, but we know that we are trying to move not only this country, but move as a people in a collective direction so that all people have equitable rights, have access, have protection, not just under the law, but just basic human rights. And so for me, it's, it started from thinking critically about the history of uh, the African-American tradition in this country and saying those voices like James Baldwin and Langston Hughes and King and Malcolm and uh, so many others who have shaped a, a voice of prophetic protest to say that we don't have to accept the status quo and we won't go back. We just can't. And so for me, that was the premise. And then I, I went to prayer service on a Friday night. We do peace walks in my community every Friday. And, uh, and I saw people struggling with what to, what to say about this. Some weren't shocked at all. They said, Rev, you saw what happened? I said, yeah, I saw what happened. And we, had, we, had, we shared a chuckle. But others really didn't know what to say because they thought that they finally beat that monster called racism. They had a nice job. They moved their family into a nice neighborhood. They were able to create safe communities. And lo and behold, rears its ugly head in a form that they would have never expected. Here we're talking about young people marching on a campus. Younger than me, and I think I'm still young. Young people marching on a campus with tiki torques and torches and speaking about in languages that, and, and talking in terms that were just destroying the notion of what we believed we were as a country. And so what I would suggest is that, you know, we have to respond with a righteous fervor. And I knew that if you stand on what is right, 
Everyone might not like it, but you know you're speaking for those who may not have the opportunity to speak for themselves. Thank you. Tracy and Jelaine, I know what Willie has said about um, some people were surprised and a lot of people weren't surprised about what happened on August 12th will resonate for you in Charlottesville too because there had been a lot of buildup, um, a lot of events that took place before August 12th that, that um, were precursors to what happened that day. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the buildup to August 12th and about how you were involved in some of those responses prior to August 12th? I could start in 1865. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe over the summer. The build up, yes, right. Yeah. right. Um, well, we've been struggling for since February of 2016, actually having a debate in our community about what to do with uh, some Jim Crow era Confederate monuments that had been installed in the 1920s, and there was a a uh, uh, growing and vocal contingent of us in the community that want these statues removed to a museum where they can be more appropriately framed as historical objects rather than as laudatory monuments to men whose ideology we do not embrace. Um, so that had been going on for, you know, since February 2016. Uh, then this was going on during the uh, presidential campaign as, you know, these very, you know, race, racist demons were being stirred up uh, by the Trump campaign and then culminating, I mean, and then uh, actually the, the, one of the biggest meetings of the year of this whole year-long process that we had of having public meetings and hearings and research about these monuments it occurred two days after the Trump election. And it was the biggest attendance to date there. And a bunch of us had, about 100 of us had matching t-shirts on that said 52%. I stand with the 52% and the 52% uh, was not Hillary voters, um, but rather the 52% of our community at the time of the Civil War were enslaved. That is the outright majority of the population of Charlottesville and Albemarle County at the time of the Civil War were slaves. You know? And so those monuments that were put in in the 1920s in our town were revisionist history from the very moment they were put in. You know, they were meant to quash the memory of the majority of people in the community who were elated when, when the Union generals arrived. So anyway, so there was a, a buildup for a lot, you know, then this was you know, coinciding with the Trump election, and then uh, our city is, you know, it's about 80% Democratic uh, Party identified, uh, and uh, the mayor declared the Charlottesville to be the, the capital of the resistance, and this is right after inauguration, and, and, uh, uh, and then the assaults started uh, on our downtown mall, which is an outdoor pedestrian uh, mall with lots of restaurants and, and boutiques and this sort of thing, uh, skirmishes between uh, um, assaults folks. being um, white white supremacists yes. coming downtown seeking to um, harass anti-racist right. organizers or or um, you know meeting in public spaces mm -hmm. to try to uh, I don't I don't know Acost accosting people mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, provoke assault yeah assaulting restaurant staff and 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 this sort of things uh, and then in February was the vote by the City Council February the 6th to uh, divided vote three to two to remove and this, this was a, after a lot of, of uh, organizing uh, grassroots organizing in the community uh, by a lot of us to, to drum people up to get people to come to meetings to City Council meetings our, our City Council meeting about they're full it, it's, it's no it's bigger than this and they're completely full, 
It's like we're, we're real civics nerds in Charlottesville because it's the <laughs> land, uh, you know, of Jefferson, of, you know, Thomas Jefferson and, and Madison and Monroe are all from the county there, and uh, um, so it's what we do. We go to a lot of city, we go to a lot of meetings. So. <laughs> um, you know, so, so but but to have this uh, heated of uh, debate, you know, for you know, basically, you know, going on a year and a half. Uh, you know, is, is the, the background of all this. This didn't all just come up on, for instance, May the 13th was when it reached national news, when there was the first of the torch rallies. But Our, our yeah. vice mayor, who's the only yeah. um, uh, uh, black person on council currently, um, has received numerous death threats, um, public harassment uh, surrounding this process. So this was all prior to um, what happened, uh, but then uh, white supremacist, neo-Nazi groups uh, started saying they're going to stand against it. Um, we had our first torchlit uh, rally, um, which was alarming because there are activists around the country who monitor these groups, mm -hmm. and no one knew that that was coming. That was May 13th. Yeah. And then from there it was announced that there would be a KKK rally on July 8th, and then the Unite the Right rally. Um, and. Uh, the alt-right uh, would, would come on August 12th. Uh, and so immediately we mobilized and organizers were speaking with one another about how to prepare. We knew that we were not prepared. We knew um, that, yeah, it, that this was, this was gonna be big and increasingly. And I, I've uh, been a part of um, direct actions um, in other cities and in other locations. And I've been a part of um, uh, uh, training or responses, clergy actions in Ferguson and in Standing Rock. Um, but this, to come into your, your hometown was, was something different that I had never uh, dealt with. But even just seeing, I mean, and, and Jolene too has a history of, um, uh, of direct action uh, and we just, we just could sense it, and we immediately started reaching out to national organizers from various, um, um, various organizations and different affiliations. Uh, and July 8th happened, and... Which was the Klan. The Klan rally. rally, which was a pretty um, pathetic gathering. I mean, the Klan has historical... Yeah, I mean it in the, yeah, in, in, uh, in the, in the, in the literal sense, but uh, the Klan has the historical memory, and so it was traumatizing. And uh, a lot of um, older people were more, was, were more concerned about this when a lot of the younger organizers were saying, no, we need to, we need to be concerned about the alt-right. But so in a lot of sense for, our, for the organizers in town and the different um, contingencies, you know, um, uh, there was um, a, a, a very nascent BLM chapter um, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Surge showing up for racial justice was about a year old. Had been doing a lot of training, but this was like the first kind of action. And then the clergy, who had been meeting since um, the Charleston shooting, um, but who had very diverse, you know, and I say clergy, those very interfaith group of people um, who had uh, a lot of divergent views on what it meant to show up, if they should show up. So July 8th, in a lot of sense, was a kind of a dry run of let's see what's happened, but let's see what, what will happen. And the community was encouraged and that the community showed up in, in real ways um, and uh, collaborative ways and uh, all those different groups showed up. But you had a clockwork militarized police response. Clockwork. Um, 
from tanks to tear gas. I think Jelaine was tear gas. My husband was tear gas, and he was in you know full clerical garb all day uh, to to break up the protests and then. Uh, rhetoric from our elected officials that that was the most nonviolent way that they could think to disperse the crowd after uh, they escorted the Klan out from a Trump from an understandably traumatized group of people that that lived there, you know. Uh, so seeing the militarized police response then was uh, a lot of people in the community had not uh, uh, seen that, and so we started preparing and we worked with. Um, Again, national organizers from these, these groups, Black Lives Matter Surge, but also brought in organizers uh, from uh, Ferguson, people from the Highlander School, which is where King uh, trained, and we started running weekly. Christian peacemaker teams. Christian peacemaker teams, because at one point, our, our, our seasoned organizers from Ferguson said, we don't know how to deal with um, multiple armed actors. We know how to kind of position ourselves against state violence, uh, and prepare for that, but when we, when we started preparing for multiple armed actors and kind of the assured, uh, um, the assured presence of violence, we had to bring in people who worked in war-torn countries. And uh, so, yeah, so we, we were training and we were preparing and we also were going to meetings with elected officials, telling them to revoke the permit, warning them what would happen, Jelaine and I were, I mean, people are surprised to find out that what happened on the 12th is exactly what we expected. People are surprised to learn that we weren't surprised. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, expected even more deaths, Yeah. actually. Yeah. And we tried to warn the officials, you know, for weeks, and we had so much evidence, you know, from, you know, all the, you know, social media from these people, and, you know, that, that we've marshaled, you know, really screenshotted, specific and very specific. Threats. You know, we, reams of paper, we, we produce reports. I mean, we're, we're civilians, we all have job, day jobs. You know, the police aren't doing their job. The FBI apparently isn't either. The press was just so behind the curve. We're a small media market. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. They can't see a large picture. We were just, you know, hollering to, to national media, just like, you know, please send help. You know, they were trying to just you know, and I'll just say us alongside that. So for my part, um, Jelena and I kind of, we, we were both very active in organizing, but kind of in different contingencies in the city. And as, as speaking to someone so, um, who also was kind of having similar conversations with clergy, who, you know, uh, white clergy specifically too, that were like, surely it's not gonna be that bad, or what, you know, are you <laughs> not, uh, and trying to, yeah. uh, trying to convey how important it would be to be present uh, for our city. Yeah, thank you for giving that background. Jolene, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, the anxieties and the fears that Tracy just mentioned that I know are not just among the clergy, but others that, that kept some people from showing up. Because in, in retrospect, looking at what happened on August 12th, um, especially from afar, there's a lot of moral clarity that, about whether or not to show up. But I know in, is there, in the I mean, midst, I, I would like to hear about that because I'm kind of in my bubble. And not, anyway, I'd, yeah. I'd like to hear that uh, from you because there's yeah okay. 
Yeah, yeah I, I think for many, for many watching what happened, and I yeah. think that the, the evidence is shown in how many people showed up in Boston yes. for, for the oh, counter right. rally there true, true. a couple right. weeks, that, sh that showing up was, in, was an important thing to do in this moment. Right. Not for all people, for some people. Right. But um, I know also that there were a lot of debates, not just yes. among the clergy, but among others, about whether Absolutely. it was good to, to show up when, when the, rally, the KKK rally happened on July 8th. The, the mayor had suggested that it might not be a good idea to show up because it could bring more attention to yeah. um, the KKK. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the, the arguments that were, yeah. that were being made about whether to show up or not? Yeah. So many officials, both at the university and in the city, uh, our city council members and others, uh, discourage the public from coming to protest. They, they actively they stay home. Uh, if you must come out at all, we are going to have these diversionary activities that are far away from the scene of the protest, but just don't go. That was, that was the message. Uh, there's no need to protest against this you know, defunct, you know, morally dead, you know, uh, ideology, they just want attention, so don't fan the flames by going, you're, you're just, you know, feeding the, the media uh, circus by, by showing up. And, you know, as I've said before, part of what motivates me is making a public witness, uh, uh, that this is, is something that's to be done in public, you know, and um, I, uh, for, I, I wasn't worried about the plan. And, and, I, and I, I was, the only thing I was surprised about with the plan was I, I really expected there to be 10 or 12 months at most. And often these Klan meetings, they often fizzle out before they happen anyway. They make these big pronouncements, we're going to march, and then nobody shows up. <laughs> and then I expected, ah, there might be 10. I was surprised, there were 40, 40 or 50. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, but I wasn't scared of them, you know, because I knew it'd be a small group. And uh, true to form, Charlottesville came out, there were like a thousand of us counter-protesters, you know, and only 50 of them. And, you know, but then afterwards, you know, getting attacked by the police, that's what was really infuriating, you know, and, and, and frustrating. Um, so people were afraid of showing up. The, the officials have on in mind public safety, which they're supposed to protect public safety, and quite frankly, legal liability. That's, those are their concerns, not how can I assist my constituents with exercising their constitutional rights to protest. That's, they, they would rather that you not be there, just you know, for, for the reasons that I've just stated, you know, liability and safety. Um, so that, you know, and, and trying to impress upon public officials that no, actually it's important that we exercise our First Amendment rights in this way, you know, by confronting what I called, in the case of the Klan, uh, the collective demons of our uh, racist past and present. You know, that I, for, for myself, it was important for me to be there, to stand there facing the Klan, you know, for all those black folk who have come before me, you know. Uh, and, for, and to be able to look my own children in the eye, it was important for me as, as a moral agent to stand there. Um, and I also teach about these things as well. So that, that, you know, so that was important. So a lot of people were afraid, and especially as Tracy mentioned, older people who, for whom, you know, when you think of the, the, you know, the boogeyman of white supremacy, it's, it's the Klan that comes to mind, you know, and rightfully so. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're very poorly organized, they're fractured, splintered, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called alt-right is a much bigger threat. They're very sophisticated with online recruiting, uh, they have very slick messengers, uh, they have, you know, one of their own uh, is, you know, in, in the Oval Office, uh, or his, you know, his uh, coterie of, of advisors, I mean, you know, Stephen Miller is a second degree proud boy. That's right, you know, and Brighton, you know, Steve Bannon was the editor of, of, of Breitbart, which is, you know, the platform for the alt-right. So, 
Um, so this goes you know, from the very top. So the, we knew from the beginning, yes, that that was the much bigger threat, that the August 12th um, Unite the Right rally was scarier. And so people were afraid of coming out, you know. Um, and, and also, you know, yeah, feeling that this, they, they bought the argument that this was going to just feed the flames. And, and, I, and I've said no, and, and we just had another torch rally. I can't even keep track of them anymore. Um, this was Saturday, a few days ago. Uh, Richard Spencer and company showed up again for another torch rally in, in one of our parks. Um, and, it, and it was very clear that some of us were there actually like interacting with them. You know, it was a group of about 40 or 50 of them. Um, what they actually want is they want acquiescence. They want to show up in public uncontested. That's, that's their true goal, you know, actually. Um, as long as we keep showing up, and I was so heartened to see, you know, the, 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 the outpouring here in Boston. I mean, mm -hmm. not only after August 12th in Charlottesville, but when you had your own contingent, you know, of, of alt-right folks showing up, that just, just the massive showing up in the streets, you know. Yeah. That's important to have a public rebuke. You know, to have, have the message just be so clear from the community that we reject this, that that is the most important thing that can happen. Not battening down the hatches and staying home and ho hovering in your house and not showing up, or ju the just ignore them. This is what our mayor told us to do. This is our, our leadership, this is our elected leadership. Well, well not, just, and not just the mayor, so even in the religious community, oh, yeah. it was very, it was very mm -hmm. conflicted. Uh, and we had, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the there's a uh, there's a few convening bodies of of interfaith uh, leaders and clergy in Charlottesville, um, but certainly the mayor uh, has at um, a couple different points in time, as has the chief of police, tried to use that as a platform to get clergy and faith leaders to be um, uh, to kind of serve the will their will that you know. Just uh, um, of the state, yeah. yeah. And at one point, um, my my husband spoke up, who I'm so proud of, um, uh, and uh, who said, uh, "The state, which is licensed to carry and use weapons, um, needs to ask us how to be peacemakers, and never the other way around." Um, so you know he he's pretty popular with <laughs> with the elected officials these days, but um, but it's but it's true. But even that it you know we say that and you say moral clarity in retrospect, yeah. but in the moment. And so this is my so I've we've we've been thinking about this because the clergy response in Charlottesville. Granted, there are many ways to show up that day and not everyone mm -hmm. walked into the park and at every single training we even said, if you walk into the park, uh, you should plan on being arrested and be prepared to get injured. And so even, all that to even say- Even you, you warned us about the threats to our life yeah, before and, the and before and well. Up into and including death. And so certainly not everyone should go into the park. And if you go, you need to know why you are showing up um, and be prepared for those things. So that being said, um, there were many different ways, and you know, I think in the end, the the clergy line that walked into the park uh, was about 50, and um, we had several hundred uh, who were serving in adjacent or in infrastructure positions, from care bearers uh, to medics to um, uh, uh, legal observation, those, those kinds of roles. Mm -hmm. um, um, 
but then clergy specifically who, who were doing different things uh, adjacent to the park. Um, but we also struggled just, uh, we had so many conversations and uh, my husband and our dear friend and colleague, Brittany Kane Conley, my husband's name is Seth Wispelway, who's an also an ordained UCC minister, um, they specifically had conversations with so many white clergy of liberal communities about why to show up, and those people seemed to struggle the most with why. Um, but we also had, uh, we had, as during the civil rights movement, we had institutions, African American leaders in the community who were institutions and religious leaders who didn't want anything to do with possible civil disobedience. And that triggered a lot of white people who didn't know where they stood to be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that, we saw that. Uh, we also saw a whole lot of people who didn't know where they, where they stood, uh, proverbially and literally. <laughs> uh, and we also saw a lot of um, privilege I'm speaking you know, more of white communities, but there were a number of white pastors who had vacations and were like, well, I have a vacation planned. So, uh, and, that, and that's hard. And I don't, you know, individually, uh, you know, these are my colleagues and friends. And of course I understand. Right. But when I, when I look back, I look back convicted about the way that um, I believe whiteness was at work in that even because if, you, if we care for our city collectively, and no one was like, well, I can't be there, so let's make sure someone can be there. Those conversations never, never happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also didn't see, um, with, with a few small exceptions, uh, churches uh, show up, and I speak specifically to, Chris, you know, uh, to the Christian communities in Charlottesville now, churches show up together. There were a, a lot of associate pastor women, <laughs> yeah. so, some of whom risked their jobs. Uh, and uh, there were um, some wonderful activists, lay leaders. Uh, but, but in terms of like whole communities embracing the process and saying we're gonna show up, we really didn't, we really didn't experience that yeah. a lot. So those are, and we're, we're lamenting, and I'm part of that, you know, yeah. part of kind of that that, that process. Thank you. I, I want to hear um, a little bit more about how religion played a role in the counter protests themselves beyond just clergy showing up, the role of, the role of ritual, um, the role of song, the role of worship. But before we do that, Willie. Oh, yeah. Bring us to Boston. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure some of these debates were happening there, but, but also thinking about the, these larger questions of um, the consequences when people of faith don't show up. What it means for the what it means for the church or the places of worship. What it means for our communities. I think the the, the conversations that were happening in Charlottesville are no different anywhere in the country when uprest like this happens. How do we respond? I think uh, people of faith have always struggled with notions of respectability and the response to power. Mm -hmm. And how am I supposed to position myself as a person of faith in respects to the state? And I think. Um, even, even in the moment, uh, we're miles away from Charlottesville, but we heard the exact same conversations. Uh, you opened the paper and you, you saw the very drastically different responses to the exact same incident. And I'm looking at myself like, how did you get that out of this? Like, if anything, we all should say, no, we can't have this anymore. 
And my question becomes, what do we do if we don't say nothing? What happens if we just ignore it and act like it's not there? And I think we as a country have done that too often. We've acted like things aren't there that are very, very present. Uh, and, you know, I think some of the shock is that we've ignored these voices that have been very, very present for a long time. And now these voices have been emboldened by political power uh, from the top all the way down to the lay. Now these voices feel that they have comfort to speak in ways in which they haven't spoken in a long time. And everyone is shocked that we no longer live in a world where those voices are the minority. And I would even push back to argue that they never really have been the minority. That in Charlottesville, I'm from Georgia, so I, when you're talking about Confederate statues, I can't go downtown without seeing one. I remember as a child seeing these conversations around the Confederate flag and how do we change the state flag. These aren't new conversations, folks. This has been a part of the fabric of this country, and we know that we have a responsibility, and folks have been doing this for a long time. And so I think what, what we saw here in Boston uh, was a beautiful display, but we didn't really get to see the, the struggle that it took to bring people together. And I'm just so proud of a sister like Monica Cannon, who's my neighbor across the street in Roxbury, who's a lay sister who started that movement by herself, literally with a Facebook post and a couple text messages. And she said, will you support her? I'm like, yeah, I got your back, I've always got your back. But it wasn't even that religious that started that response. It was somebody who was in the community who said, we're not gonna stand for that. And how do we as church folk or people of faith align in solidarity with people who may not be as overtly in positions of power as the pastor or as the assistant pastor? Because the work of justice still needs to be done no matter what. And so there are people who are putting their voices out there but I think there is a conversation to be had here at the Divinity School across faith traditions writ large about what does it mean to really do justice. I'm of the belief that it doesn't mean going back and just being quiet and praying about it without any action. Or writing a tweet. You can write a tweet, as <laughs> long as you get out there and walk a little bit. <laughs> I saw Carrie Maloney out there. It was good to see Carrie at the march because I know she knows what it means to do justice. It means that you can't just talk about it, you have to actually be about it. You have to speak about it, but you also have to act about it. And the work that is necessary for us as people of faith, because when you're in positions like a pastor, assistant pastor, you're a deacon, people look to you. There's a responsibility. Professors, your students look to you. And they want to know what are you going to do and how are you going to shape this conversation so it makes sense to me that I have the right response. And in Boston, one of the things that made me speak was that we needed to be able to say it's okay to not feel good about racism. It's okay to push back against power. It's okay to say we're going to stand up on the side of what is right. And if they come to our city, we're going to show up in large numbers and ensure that our voices are heard. Mm -hmm. Nobody's pulling a race card here. <laughs> it's overt. And we have to make sure that we do that. But racism is sneaky because it operates on a continuum. So we can talk about just the overt representations, but we also have to talk about the systemic representations of racism each and every day, whether it's in our school systems, whether it's in our police forces, whether it's in our public safety, whatever it may be. Because Boston has its issues in itself. You're talking about a majority white police force. 
You're talking about a, a 90% fire department force. You're talking about the fact that many of people in this city do not reap the benefits of the outpouring that we saw on that day. So it was an eerie feeling, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The majority of people at that march didn't look like me. Mm -hmm. They didn't look like my brother who was with me. Mm -hmm. They looked like the majority of the people in this body. And so the question is, the very folk that we were fighting for weren't even in the march mostly. And why? And how do we address that conversation? How do we deal with those tough conversations intracommunally? How do we deal with those conversations intergenerationally? Because it is true that some of the older ministers are like, well, I ain't going to be out there marching like that. I'm going to leave that to y'all young boys. And that's okay. But I need to know where you stand. Because when, it come, when the rubber meets the road, I need to know that I'm going to speak out and I'm going to have some support. But even if I don't, I'm going to say what I need to say anyway. And so I think what we have to do, uh, I, when I was in Ferguson, I, they asked me, why y'all come down here? And I said, what are you going to do afterwards? And my response was simply, there's a Ferguson near you. That the reason we speak out is because these injustices are not just in Charlottesville. It'll be unfair to put all this on them. It's happening here in Boston. It's happening in D.C. It's happening in New York. It's happening across the country writ large. And just because your, your city didn't get the media attention this time doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to speak up, to speak out, and to do justice. Amen. I'm going to open it up to Q&A to all of you in a little bit, so prepare yourselves. But before I do that, Tracy, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how religion showed up on August 12th and before. Open up the gates, open up the gates of justice, open up the gates, open up the gates of justice, we're gonna walk on through, we're gonna walk on through to the other side, we're gonna walk on through, don't pay no mind to that old statue. Sing out with me. Open up the gates. Open up the gates of justice. Open up the gates of justice. Open up the gates. Open up the gates of justice. Walk on through. We're gonna walk on through to the other side. We're gonna walk on through. Don't pay no mind to that old statue. We'll sing it out if you forgot. Black and brown are beautiful children of God. We'll sing it out if you forgot. Black and brown are beautiful children of God. We'll sing it out if you forgot. Trans, trans, and queer are beautiful children of God. We'll sing it out. If you forgot, immigrants are beautiful children of God. Amen. 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 You showed up. <laughs> so I worked with a rabbi and uh, a, um, a Muslim leader in town, and the three of us planned the interfaith service prior to uh, the 12th. So on Friday night, um, we put together liturgy and songs and readings. Um, from different traditions 
I, I also am a songwriter and a music producer, and I um, wrote half a dozen songs and prepared about 12 hours of what I would consider um, resistance liturgy that was intended to be part of the direct action. Um, and, in, and then at the last minute was not because of uh, different ways the police had barricaded the, the area, the decision that both my husband and I did not want to be uh, in, in equal, in equal uh, kind of proximity to um, violence uh, and different things that that did not happen. Um, but there was a lot of preparation and interfaith connection that happened. And so we're all Christian here, unfortunately, but um, yeah, the effort and <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> But yeah, it was a, it was very much a, a, an interfaith effort. And my dear friend, or well, both of our friends, who um, you know, this uh, uh, young Muslim woman who's a PhD student at, at UVA, um, she's a hijabi woman, and she is one of our best activists and so faithful. And she was committed to showing up, and we just we like all of all of us. We didn't want that to happen, and that, actually, when you were speaking, yeah. what I thought of, you know, when we issued the clergy call, um, we we issued a, a national call to religious leaders, but a with a specific appeal to white men um, because people were people. I mean, that day we knew that everybody was a target. No, there was no safe space, but anyone who was going to be identifiably other. Uh, was going to be in, in that, mm -hmm. that much extra of, um, of uh, real bodily danger. Uh, we did have one hijabi woman on the line, and bless her, Sahar um, Al-Sani. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think in the civil rights movement, before civil dis disobedience, there was often a, a prayer gathering that would happen the night before. Uh, and so in that kind of same spirit, we sought to uh, frame what we're doing. And, and again, this, this, we recognize this might not have been the case for other uh, activists and uh, activist groups in the city. But for the faith leaders that came, we had uh, um, a few intersecting uh, claims from our faith traditions and things that compelled us to show up in an embodied way. And so we highlighted those, we celebrated those, we interceded. Um, in, in the name of that uh, part of our tradition. And we also offered an altar call uh, for anyone feeling compelled to do civil disobedience. I mean, that, that, that would happen in the civil rights um, uh, movement. So that was all part of the service and framing uh, that it's not just, you know, I think part of the struggle that I hear from organizers, certainly the struggle and what I have to resist in, 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 um, in the interest of being able to stay in the movement of the action of love, working towards a sustained justice and not just reacting towards these crises, uh, is to remain connected to this story and these legacies. Uh, and so it was an attempt to um, connect to these legacies of, of ancestors, generations past and future, uh, and find ourselves in this moment together. And I know from being there that those, those, those rituals and practices and songs and, and performing worship in, in, this, in that space as the rally was going on provided a great strength and spiritual resilience that allowed and, and you to be I there. I should say, I mean, so, so Tracy planned the, the August 11 Friday night 
kind of, well, it's kind of prayer service, you know, to kind of fortify folks, you know. And it was, <laughs> Tracy Blackman was there, gave a yeah. barn burner of a, storm, of a sermon. There were 500 people just packed in there in this Episcopal church, you know. And then the plan was to, after the barn burner of a sermon and all, you know, all these, and the uh, altar call, and yeah. there would be the, and the altar call, that it would funnel into a mass session of training for nonviolent direct action for anyone that hadn't received training mm -hmm. so that they would be prepared for the next morning in the parks, right? But what happened was that while we were there in that service that Tracy had planned with such care was that across the street was a torch rally with you know, several hundred Nazis had come in with their torches and were attacking students and, and all of this. And we were told to shelter in place. And it was just a very scary situation and a lot of confusion as hundreds of people were trapped in the church. I was tweeting from the church you know, just in desperation, you know, out of there, you know, that the, because, well, by then it was on the news, I think, yeah. that this, yeah. this rally was happening, and then, and then across the street, here we are, trapped in there with hundreds of yeah. people. So th there was that, and then, um, um, yeah, j just, uh, I was trying to think of uh, kind of other religious responses, too. I mean, the, the, uh, so th this, I mean, this kind of, uh, unfortunately, so, it kind yeah. of uh, derailed. There was, know, I mean, there was the direct act, there was the direct action, the line. So we started Saturday morning. So not much sleep oh, on right. Friday night. Saturday morning was a, a sunrise service as well. Right. That's it. Um, at, the, at the Black Baptist Church that was founded by Freedmen right after the Civil War. Yeah. So that was important. And that was the launching place from which both um, uh, clergy religious um, leaders would march out on the line into the park and also uh, march into adjacent areas. Um, and there were there were clergy there all uh, all day. You can you can even share. Well, you can share. You know where you were and, and kind of the response you saw. Yeah. Well, I I am just very struck by there there was there was prayer that was being said um, by those who were on the line uh, in front of Emancipation Park, but also at the scene of of where the um, car attack happened. Their clergy showed up there and were offering pastoral care. Were offering prayer mm -hmm. um, for the the survivors. Um, and the medics who are taking care of them. But there was also the, for me, being in, worshiping God in the midst of that as all of that was going on, uh, the, the rally, the Unite the Right rally in Emancipation Park in a church that was just adjacent to it. Um, and particularly the recitation of Psalm 46, um, God is a very present help in trouble. Mm. Um, the God of, ref uh, or God of Refuge was incredibly powerful to recite those words, those ancient words in that space and to feel a comfort that came from that. But it's also very jarring, this juxtaposition of candles and, and prayers and mantras being said within the church and then outside torches yep. and mantras being yeah. said for very different life dealing and death dealing, very different purposes. And when they announced inside the church that the Nazis were outside doing this, uh, we we doubled down and, and Reverend Seiku said, we're gonna sing even loud. I mean, we sang and we clapped and we stomped even loud. I mean, yeah. we were just like, we just, I mean, just yeah. singing through our fear. You know, we didn't know if they were gonna come in and attack us or not. Yeah. You know, we knew there were a lot of them out there, you know, and we, you know, it was like, yeah. who, who knows what's going to happen? You know, and, and they, this is the yeah. night before, mind you, yeah. this is the night before, you know, and, um, yeah. And so we just started singing and clapping and praying and even louder. You know what I mean? I mean, for me, I, I had even more resolve. And I'm like, oh, hell no. They're not going <laughs> to turn me away. You know what I mean? But also a fear. You know? I, I will say, though, that the next day, um, I got a little sick of this little light of mine. <laughs> it was a lot of this little light of mine. <laughs> but, but also, I would say, I mean, the, 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 the service on Saturday morning that was at the beginning, you know, before the march to the parks, you yeah. know, 
I was hugging someone also from Black Lives Matter there, and it was, you know, it was eight in the morning, his shirt was already soaked with sweat, and we were both crying. Yeah. And we were crying, well, I know why I was crying, because <laughs> I knew it was eight in the morning on Saturday morning, we'd just come out of church, we were you know, on the way to the park, you know, and I knew already, <laughs> somewhere, somehow, someone was gonna die that day. I mean, it, just, it was just, Death came. it was just clear, especially after that torch rally, not before, I'm like, oh, they're yeah. out for blood. You know. Thank you. I'd like to open up the discussion to all of you. We have Francesca with the microphone, so please raise your hand if there is a question that you would like to offer. Um, we have one over here, Francesca. And I ask that you just say who you are and then briefly ask your question so we can get as many in as possible. So I want to say thank you to the presenters. Um, and my name is Angel Calvin, by the way. I am a second year student here at the Divinity School. Um, I'm also a UVA alum and um, 2014. And so I'm gonna to try to keep it as brief as possible. But first I thank want to you. commend the the, everyone who organized throughout the summer, um, even facing militarized police response and still feeling the courage to continue in August. Um, as a UVA alum, a black UVA alum, I can look back at my experience at UVA with some nostalgia because of my black experience there. The black community there is very vibrant and mm -hmm. does have a history and rooted in combating white supremacist structures there um, and carving out a place for itself there. And so my question is one related to UVA specifically because I see their engagement with, I, I, they're an institution that has power in Charlottesville. And white supremacy is ultimately, it's rooted in the spiritual, but it does, it's driven by institutions. And UVA is a powerful institution in the city that has a voice. And so I'm wondering what are clergy doing or other, others doing in the area even after the pro, even after the rallies, to really, um, I guess, address the structures that helped white supremacy to continue to persist, which UVA is complicit in. Even as someone who can look back and say, I enjoy my experience there, I also know that it is compl complicit in allowing that to persist. And I believe that the spiritual and the institutional are intertwined. So, how are clergy also working on addressing structural? Uh, I guess the structural aspects even after the rally. And that's not just for Charlottesville, but for cities across the nation yeah. as well. And is your question in particular the structural issues with respect to universities? And um, how are they targeting universities or thinking about universities as, in this? As or far, even I guess I'm trying to say that it's an institution that is very powerful. Mm -hmm. When people think of Charlottesville, they think of UVA. Okay. And so they, their voice, their actions, their legacy, and they've sown the seeds in essence to allow something like August 12th to happen. Um, and so I think it's important to also, I'm, I'm, I always see the institutional as important when it comes to the spiritual. Okay. And so I'm wondering what, what, what action clergy are taking when it comes to really, I guess, kind of attacking, for lack of a better word, just the complicity of institutions. Thank you, Angela. Uh, I'll res I can respond a little bit in terms of campus ministry, and then Jelaine is, you know, has an intimate relationship with the university. Uh, so I, I was a campus minister working with university students uh, at UVA for the three years prior to starting this current role. And um, 
I absolutely agree with you that uh, the, the um, Black Student Association, other black and people of color led organizations at the University of Virginia were um, prior to the movement landing in Charlottesville um, at the front line of uh, just bringing that um, awareness and continuing legacy to the community. Uh, and so uh, it was in 2014, I believe, that the Black Student Association released a comprehensive document called Towards a Better University. And it, what it is, um, it's, I mean, you can Google it. It's still a comprehensive document that everything from increasing faculty of color, really what I heard you saying, like addressing the institution um, to, uh, you know, unmask. And um, my, my colleague was, my colleague from the UCC here uh, was talking about some of um, their racial justice curriculum. They go through the process of unmasking, dismantling, and eradicating. And this, uh, this document and the efforts that continue are really at every level from student life to um, you know, memorialization and public memory. Uh, in terms of clergy, there's, a, there's uh, the, the ministers and the interfaith group that works with students. Um, you know, it really, it's also a Jeffersonian model. Like the students very much lead that. Um, but there's, for the last three years, also been Holy Week of Resistance geared towards uh, work, um, uh, seeking to abolish state sanctioned violence, but in the context of the university, which then looks like oh, paying a li living wage to all the laborers, um, lamenting uh, inadequate response and rebuke to uh, really violent, spiritually violent, and um, physically violent threats. Uh, against marginalized communities. Um, I think, you know, in the, nothing, everything is different post 12. So what it will continue to look at, I can say in the city uh, that the energy and is focusing around housing as it is in a lot of cities. Mm -hmm. um, and dealing with that creatively and also in the very like, uh, just kind of policy level. But uh, for the university, then the students, I mean, three students were arrested last week uh, at, the, at the bicentennial celebration for holding up a sign that said 200 years of slavery. So there's, in, the one, in, some, in some instances, I believe UVA is having a, a, a genuine process, um, as good as any I've seen, and then in other areas, things like this happened, and I'm, I'm just beside myself. In post-12, I'm a lot more skeptical um, because of the uh, just complete denial and um, I mean, denial is if I give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, uh, I, would, I would say much more um, just uh, there's a lot of um, dishonesty and um, not coming forward with what was known and why the university police allowed that to ha happen. I just, I mean, can yeah. you imagine any other group marching through with torches, not being stopped immediately and arrested? Um, so. Jelaine, do you want to add something brief before we take another question? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak to what clergy are, yeah. are doing. I mean, Tracy's, of course, is much more close to that. But I, I'd say there's been an uptick in folks that are attending meetings about affordable housing and, and going to those kind of policy meetings. That's, that's been an outlet. I, I talk about condensation and dissipation when I talk about white supremacy. And mm -hmm. these monuments are hunks of metal that are there that are condensed symbols of a white supremacist slaveholding regime. Republic, 
you know. Uh, another condensation moment was performative, which is these rallies that are coming. So these are very visible moments of condensation of white supremacy, but the dissipation is mm, arguably as, as or more toxic because it, the organism breathes it in, these aerated particles, and it, and it, and it, and it affects the, the organism and, and to, to death. You know? And so anyway, there, there's been, I think people are making more of a connection between uh, those, you know, the, these the symbolism and, and uh, the, you know, the so-called alt-right and, and organizing around the country and then what's going on locally here with affordable housing. There's been more interest in that, I would say. Any other burning questions? We have one here? Maybe we could take um, a couple questions since we're running out of time and we can try to answer as many of them as possible. Hi, I'm Arlay Prelo. I'm a member of the Alumni Council here and, and a graduate of 2013. Mm -hmm. My question really has to do with spiritual resources for the people who participated and how they sustain themselves after going through uh, the trauma of the, you know, the march. And also for you as individuals um, to sustain you for the next time, for the next uh, move. What is keeping you? What are you reading? What are you doing? What are you sharing with others? Thank you. Dudley? Well, I think Before, we're, listening to the oh, we're going to take a few questions mm -hmm. and try to get in as many as possible. One of the things that I was struck by in, in watching Charlottesville unfold was um, how much not only racism, but anti-Semitism and other kinds of bigotry were in evidence. And I'm just wondering how any of you see the future of uh, fighting against all of those together. That's you know is that a possibility? Do they have to. Does that fragment things too much? Uh, it just it, it seems to me that uh, the the whole thing with immigrants and uh, with Muslims, for uh, uh, example, all are being raised in the same same set of events. Mm -hmm. We had a couple questions over here, Brandy. Hi, good evening. I am Carlene Griffith Sekou. I was one of the um, core organizers for the march here in Boston. Um, Monica Cannon put the flyer out. She contacted organizers from Black Lives Matter Boston, uh, Cambridge, and our network was mobilized to um, organized the march in Boston. Um, my particular role was to organize clergy um, and organize the nonviolent direct action trainings and Carrie came out, Stephanie Paulsell was a part of that. Um, it's very critical to say if we're comparing or learning lessons from both contexts that sitting at the table, the core organizers consisted of not only local Black Lives Matter network, but a national network. These are folk who were on Ferguson. These are folk who responded in Baltimore. These are folk who were on the front lines of day in and day out organizing, putting their bodies on the line. And our strategy um, not only drew from the civil rights movement of the sanitized king that we know, um, but we also know that Boston as a city, the clergy, um, many of whom were having those conversations, 
have also been primarily disengaged and um, practice sort of the symbolic um, representation of what the gospel means rather than the embodied representation where you put your life on the line, where the rubber meets the road. And so there was a lot of distrust of clergy because A, it's still, Boston still remains very segregated. There are a lot of interfaith, dialogical groups that talk, but there, also, there is also a lot of factions. And so the Black Ministerial Alliance, um, was distrusted. We had a deep conversation about that. Um, the, the varying interfaith groups that met at Temple Beth Israel, we had a, a contingency that came out, and there were clergy who came out, um, many committed, many curious, um, to ultimately decide what to do. And in part, it was because it was women, black, queer, LGBTQ, immigrants, all of the cross sections that, are the that theologically divide not only the black church, but the city was the, divide, the dividing line. Because these are the people that are constitutive of the Black Lives Matter movement, we felt that it was imperative that when we put out a call for clergy, that they understood if you come, you're coming for queer, black, women, LGBTQ, immigrants, right, transgendered, you're coming for Jewish folk, you're coming for all of us. This is why Black Lives Matter says until Black Lives Matter, no one's life matters. Because our imagination is not as it has ever been before to include a humanity and a representation of the gospel that we have not seen and that does not bear fruit in moments like this when the rubber meets the road, right? So I'm, I will stop there to say this. The other dividing line was that we were clear with the city we're not partnering with the police, we expect that they will be there. We expect that they will do their job. We expect the protection, but we also knew that if you're black, queer, and all of the other groups that are terrorized in our neighborhoods, in Willie's neighborhood, in Monica's neighborhood, in Roxbury and Dorchester, we were not safe either. So if you were white and you were not an ally and not simply an accomplice, but a freedom fighter in solidarity, being willing to lay your lives down, your job was to protect us. Thank you. To Thank serve you as a border between the police and the people. And so Antifa mm -hmm. served as our protection. My question, sorry, for the Boston <laughs> no. context, this is really important yeah. to acknowledge that, that, that women, queer, black-led, and non-clergy very much led by moral ethical principles. Absolutely. Because the gospel means that we lay our lives down and that all of us are in the same boat. That white folk, Jewish folk, they're not coming to fight a civil rights movement for black people any longer. White people are implicated in this moment and white supremacy is also, right? White folk are also the first victims of white supremacy. So when you show up, we're showing up as a humanity with a different imagination. <laughs> My question for you is I've seen 
um, that Antifa intervened in a most significant way to protect and lay their bodies down. And symbolically and materially, they represent the gospel to many people more so than clergy in garb, marching, blocked arms, which is beautiful. It's not to take anything from that. But we knew this moment required something differently. And our organizing drew from every faction of our community. So That's when we put out the is. call, they showed up. Yeah. So the role of Antifa and where do you okay. stand or see them in light of their action in that day? We don't have to talk about their ideology or philosophy, but how the religious shows up in the role that they played here as well as in your protest. Thank, thank you for you. And thank you for giving that, that greater context uh, about Boston, which is very useful to hear. Unfortunately, we're out of time. And so I know there were further questions. Um, and, I, and I wish I had more opportunity, more time for, for um, all of our speakers to answer all of those questions. But I might ask you to do the impossible and to offer a word and conclusion that speaks to some of these questions of spiritual resources, of Antifa, of the, the intersectionality of, of the many issues that are being raised right now um, in, as a conclusion. Oh. Lily? Well, well, I, I guess I'll start trying to do the impossible. <laughs> um, to speak to Carlene's point, uh, I think the movement looked different here. Um, it wasn't a clergy-led movement. And to be honest, a lot of the movements that we saw over the last 10 years haven't been clergy-led. And I think that's kind of made the, the country uncomfortable in some way, because we don't know what it looks like without religious-led leadership. But it's okay, right? The work of justice doesn't have to be led by a preacher. <laughs> I think there's some humility, right, to do justice and to walk humbly. And I think one of the things that we as clergy can also understand is that we don't have any autonomy over the justice work. I think there's a lesson in that. And so where is the role of Antifa is the role where we all should be standing is what does it mean to sacrifice and how do we sacrifice for the other? How do we sacrifice for our brother? How do we sacrifice for our sister? And those roles should be embodied by anyone and we should acknowledge that when we see it. I can't speak to everyone's ideology. I can't speak to everyone's beliefs. But what I can say is that it shouldn't matter who's doing the justice. We should just recognize that it is justice. And so I give great credit to uh, the black women who led the march, the black queer women, transgender women, whoever it may have been, because I was there in solidarity. I, did, I had no issue because my goal is to do justice, to walk humbly, to love mercy. And in doing that, you don't really worry about who's doing the work. You stand with the work if it's for the right thing. And so I think the sacrifice, uh, we can't deny the sacrifice of those who put their bodies on the line. We can't deny the sacrifice of those who are willing to make sure that others are protected so that the justice work can be done. I would never stand and I couldn't integrally stand and do that. But, but I think just so I may close this conversation for myself up, right, and I promise you I'll be done right here. What, the question also was asked, yeah, please, yeah. But the question was also asked was about what are we doing to actually continue this discourse. I'm a former football player. I can't help but say I haven't watched an NFL game this year, even after my Falcons lost to the Patriots. <laughs> Belly. <laughs> I haven't watched a game this year because I think there's something interesting that has been happening in this country now, and I want to leave this on our minds about what is happening where there's become a 
conversation around prophetic witness and patriotism. And how some way, somehow, having a prophetic witness has been juxtaposed to patriotism. So much so that to speak towards power means to be unpatriotic. And I think that dichotomy has kind of shaped where we are right now. And it's always kind of been the foundations of this country. To speak back towards power means you're being un-American. But I'm reminded of Baldwin who says, I love this country dearly, so I continually to critique her often. And so I think what we should be thinking about in this moment is what does it truly mean to be prophetic in this moment? What does it mean to have a voice for justice? What does it mean to have a voice of love? How do we actually do the hard work of doing the intersectional combining of movements to actually push back against power and saying to the state, the state doesn't control the people, the people are the state, right? We dictate what the state does. And so I think we have to really criticize the traditions that have been built around the ideals of this country, which have been rooted in a non-neutral framework. They have been rooted in favor of those who are white. But we have a world that is so different. We have gays, we have levies, lesbians, we have blacks, we have whites, we have uh, people of all faith traditions. And we have set a standard so great and so grand that we want to live up to it. And I'm telling you that we're going to have to fight to do it. We're going to stand up to do it. And we can't be silent, especially as people of faith and people who have studied these issues. We have a moment right now to actually speak truth to power and to bring clarity to a country that is caught in a moment of confusion. Thank you. Michael, the word of God cannot be contained. I'm going to, with your permission, um, and I know that some people may need to leave, and that's perfectly fine, but I also want to give an opportunity to Tracy and Jelaine to give a brief one or two lines of final reflection. Uh, sure. So thank you so much for those thoughtful questions. They're so, um, so important. And in, in a re response, I also, there's not a sense, I don't have the sense that the organizing and the action in Charlottesville at all is clergy-led. No. Clergy were, were um, c completely collaborating and even taking a backseat to um, Black Lives Matter and some of the other uh, group, um, yeah, activists in the city, and it was a collective decision mm -hmm. to send clergy out into the park. So that's important to know. I, it also, I completely uh, agree with you, and our hope was that white, white uh, freedom fighters would do that. When we put the clergy call out, uh, we also, we made that special appeal. Um, we also needed people that were trained uh, and by and large the people that were willing to come and the people that were trained were people of color, women, LGBTQ people, people who have been in it. Um, and so I think, um, I think that there were three white cis male uh, people, or white cis male uh, faith leaders on the line in the front when, like when you see the pictures of people that went on the park, of the 50 that went into the park. Um, so that was just a little bit of a reflection and just clarifying to make sure that, yeah, that we were very much like. Thank you. Um, the role of Antifa. I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot to be said that uh, uh, there was gospel. There was a gospel moment for a lot of people that were on the line, and the story's been told over and over. But Antifa directly in intervened. Um, 
and uh, saved uh, saved the literal bodies of um, a lot of the clergy that were there. In Cornwall, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, including my husband, including others, and that that is a um, when when I seek to see the gospel alive in the world, not you know not project what I think it should be in the characters. I can't help but notice that. Uh, and um, I, I do think, I, I hear what you say and I agree with you in ideology, like it, but it does matter to me when I'm standing with someone who doesn't believe women should be ordained. <laughs> it, it, it affects the trust that I have in that person and that's a struggle along the way. So that's not to say that I don't walk side by side with people and struggle, but I, I don't completely feel, you know, because we're gonna break through whatever we're dealing with and eventually we're gonna have to turn to face each other. And I do think that uh, what I have come to terms with as um, someone who served in a white liberal church that championed LGBTQ rights, but who doesn't know that they're a white church, who hasn't, you know, like kind of uh, can't articulate what the force of their whiteness is. And then I see, um, you know, um, kind of more patriarchal uh, um, black churches who have been on the front lines of racial justice and systemic work and who yet are not, are not quite or who are not there, yeah. you know, I can't, I can't now, I, I, I have a harder time distinguishing those things, but I do think we are ultimately working for collective liberation, and I absolutely think that's yeah. what the gospel, as I understand it, is, yeah. is moving us towards. Stop there, thank you. Jelaine, literally, do we, can we get one line of, of final <laughs> advice or reflection from you? You have the impossible <laughs> Okay, well, Charlottesville is happening, uh, uh, in, in, this is coming to you. Folks, it's not just because we have these Confederate monuments and we have, you know, but this is coming to you. Yeah. The so-called alt-right is organizing. Uh, they have their man in the White House. We're living under an authoritarian regime that week by week, I mean, you see the news, you know, that there's just one thing after another, or, you know, the, uh, this is a crisis for liberal democratic institutions, all right? And the sorts of training and frameworks that we have, yeah, even the stuff I was taught here, we're very much challenged by this, you know? Um, and, and, but uh, the need for public witness continues. Yeah, so. amen, thank you. Margaret Rose, will you take us out? Um, can you do it after we've formally concluded? And we'll make sure you get your chance, thank you. Well, I think it's clear, divinity dialogues are not meant to be a spectator sport, <laughs> but to engage us all, not only in this conversation, but also in all kinds of public voice and witness. And so this is an invitation to continue to do that. We'll do that in our council. I know that you'll do that among yourselves and, and beyond. So I just wanna say thank you to all of you for being here. Yeah, thank you.